I'm good. Let's do it. Hello there. Can you believe we are at the end of August already? How was your summer? This is Mom Sipping Sangria. I'm Sheila Walsh with Anita Reynolds MacArthur. And over the past two seasons of Mom Sipping Sangria, Anita and I have been fortunate enough to chat with some amazing people over some very tasty sangria. And we want to share a few of our favorite conversations with you for this episode. Best of season one of Mom Sipping Sangria was last month. And this time we are doing our best of season two featuring wine expert Natalie McLean. And even if you, you know, don't indulge in wine yourself, understanding what wine works with, you know, what dish for your guests or perhaps as a gift for someone is a great takeaway from her chat for sure. And then we have Dr. Natasha Sharma, who we've had the pleasure of having on a few times over the past couple of years. She's going to revisit some emotional well-being strategies as we head into September, the fall, the new school year. Yeah, the new sequel. I always, I always look at this time of year as like the new year. Right. I know New Year is January, but I've always associated September with feeling like, oh, it's the new year, you know, Um, it's a time of renewal. Yeah, for sure. And we wrap it up with the one, the only Erin Davis. Now, really, do we need to say anything else about Erin, except she's always on point and great and funny. All this ahead on the best of Mom Sipping Sangria season two. Cheers. Cheers. Hi, Natalie McLean, a.k.a. Chief of Wine Happiness. Welcome <laughs> welcome to Mom Sipping Sangria. It's so good to be here with you, Sheila and Anita. Natalie, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? It's almost cocktail hour, but not quite. Somewhere, though. Oh, of course. Um, we wanted to get right into it because there's so much to talk about today. Uh, let's start with what was the path that led to you becoming a wine expert? And I believe sommelier is the right word? Mm-hmm, right on. Um, so wine really wasn't part of my family uh, table growing up. I come from Nova Scotia. Um, so it was beer and whiskey on the table, not wine. That was a little too fancy. Um, and I really actually didn't start drinking, as I say, until I met my husband. <laughs> and um, I haven't found a reason to stop. So, But um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the knowledge didn't come till much later in life until we had graduated from um, the MBA program at Western in London, Ontario. And we started going out for dinner and because we didn't, well, I didn't cook and he didn't want to. So we would go out a lot and we'd order wine. I I remember the first time that we went to this little Italian restaurant around the corner from our apartment in Toronto and the waiter said, well, would you like the Brunello? And we thought, yeah, that sounds like a great pasta dish. But it was was a full-bodied red Italian wine and we absolutely absolutely loved it. And so that sparked the passion. And then from there, you know, we took a sommelier course at night because we could drink, uh, you know, and being A-type personalities, we weren't going to take up golf and that kind of thing. So it went from there and and, um, it continued. That's fantastic. Now, we noticed uh, on your website, you're holding a glass of red only in those photos. Are we to presume that that red is your go-to? Absolutely. That that glass has long been finished, but it's been refilled many, many times. Um, that's not just a prop. Uh, that glass is a big one. Um, I don't know if you beep out certain words, but it's a big ass glass. <laughs> I really, I've seen bigger, but that is a big ass glass. <laughs> yeah, okay. And that's the one you use for Pinot Noir. Okay. So um, my favorite go-to wine because it's, I think, the wine of hedonists. It's uh, got all the sort of cherry berry flavor you could love, but not the heavy oak and alcohol that will leave you asleep on the sofa at seven. So it's often served in a big glass because it has so many wonderful, beautiful aromas. <laughs> Some of those glasses get so big, I swear you could probably have a facial in one afterwards. <laughs> hey, there's an idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of people say they can't drink red, gives me a, a headache. What's the response? And is that all reds? Is that like all, Pinot and, and Cab and all those different ones? It depends. Everybody's body is different in terms of what you might react to. So there are 
I think, more compounds, natural compounds in red wine that can affect people, like the tannins is, is one of them. Tannin is uh, what you get. If you eat uh, walnuts or oversteeped tea, you get that furry mouth feeling. Right. Um, so those are tannins. It's kind of a drying astringency, and it's often found in red wines, and it comes from the grape skins or the barrels in which the wines are aged. And so, because with white wine, the grape skins are removed, there's no color or very little color. You don't get those tannins, and especially in an unoaked white. So that could be it, or it could be the histamines. There are natural histamines in red wine that aren't as prevalent in white wines as they are in red. Um, but then on the white wine side, you get sulfites. It's not a, as big a problem as you might think. There is a small percentage of the population who are allergic to sulfites, but there's more sulfites in a glass of orange juice than an entire bottle of wine. Oh, interesting. So, okay, so yeah. people are staying away from that because of the sulfites, and that's not necessarily um, something that they, they have to be super conscious of, but obviously if they react, they, they should uh, take a different direction. Very interesting. Exactly. Okay, so so oh. it is the, the ingredients that would, would affect people differently. Hmm, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, which then I guess leads me to the question, so like, why do we choose the wines that we choose? Like, for instance, when we walk into a liquor store and we're not sure what we're going to pick up, then suddenly we, you know, especially for women, um, is there an answer for why we're picking up the bottles that we're picking up? Sure. There's one of comfort. Um, we often default to the same wine over and over again, which um, I can understand, and yet there's a whole world of pleasure and taste waiting for you in wine that I really do encourage people to try different wines, but I can understand it because wine is a purchase that's unlike most other consumer products. Um, you can't try it on like you can with a dress. You can't sort of flip through the first chapter like you could with a book. And you can't try it before you buy it, at least not legally. <laughs> so you have to wait till you get home. And so we're often looking at, you know, a cute critter or a castle or a, a clever name on the label. And that's how most people make their buying decisions. And so, you know, I think women in particular, uh, we are the major household purchasers still of everything from shreddies to SUVs yep. in the family, and we buy the majority of wine. The studies show we buy 80% of wine because we're also the social planners and the dinner party folks and the, the shoppers. So we often look for wines that will please everyone. Like if we're having a book club or if we're having a dinner party, we're often trying to gauge, okay, which wines is, are going to kind of be pleasing the palate of many guests. And so that too can be tricky to negotiate. And um, it's why I often say, you know, if you know you like a certain wine, okay, you love this, whatever, this Shiraz from Australia, ask the liquor store staff person, tell that person, I like this wine, can you recommend something else that's like it? And they'll already have an idea of your taste preference and your budget. Oh, that's a smart way. So that way you can expand your horizons, but not have that, uh, you know, you're not taking as great a chance. Exactly. And you can do that in restaurants too, because often the wines on the list are probably, you're not even familiar with them, nor am I, because they try to get wines that are not in the liquor stores to give you a, a different taste experience. So do the same there too. Say, I love this particular Malbec. Uh, what would you suggest from your list that would be comparable? Um, what are your thoughts on, like, a house wine brand? Well, traditionally, house wines were kind of the Venus dumping ground of restaurant lists. Um, <laughs> the late Anthony uh, Bourdain said it was like um, legalized mugging. You <laughs> all the, uh, the, the markups were the most on those wines because they would get something cheap and nasty right. and then mark it up so much because a lot of people order house white or house red without really thinking about it. They just, and again, I, I don't fault anyone for that because, you know, our, our brains have been making decisions all day. You don't want to go to a restaurant at night if, if you're not into wine and try to figure out, you know, which one of these are we going to drink? Just give me the house red, <laughs> house red or house white. So, but these days, if uh, there are more and more restaurants that care about their wine lists and 
they also care about the by the glass selections. So to me, if the restaurant cares about something like by the glass, it's like they care about the bread they serve. It's kind of that canary in the mind that tells you, okay, this is going to be a good good meal. Mm-hmm. So it really does depend on the, the type of restaurant you're going to. And that's not to say you have to go to a fancy place to get a decent house wine, but you just want to look carefully. How are they sort of, you know, presenting the list? You know, the, the caliber and quality of, of the food and service will also be indicative of what you can expect from the house wine. Right. And like you said, if uh, it, you can always ask them, just like you can ask the LCBO that, you know, I want to try something like this. This is what I like. And then maybe if they're, they know their wines, they're able to offer you that information. Exactly. Exactly. Can I just throw a couple of questions at you regarding um, looking for maybe what's a, a low cow wine or a low sugar wine? Or can you school us a little bit on is there such a thing and maybe recommend what to look for? Sure. Um, there have been brands la- launched um, internationally that are deliberately low cow. And I haven't come across any that I'm super keen on because usually they're making the wine and spinning it out, um, almost denaturing it of its alcohol. Alcohol is a flavor carrier. Um, it's also a fun carrier, but it, it <laughs> carries the flavor of, of the wine. And so it, it's a, it's a fine balance that you want to strike when you're trying to find something that is um, low alcohol or low calorie. So what I suggest is look for cool climate regions, um, Ontario, BC, Nova Scotia, uh, Germany, um, Austria, all kinds of them, uh, New Zealand. Cool climate means that there are less or fewer ripening days and sunlight and heat to ripen the grapes. As a result, those grapes have less sugar than, say, a really warm climate in Napa or Sonoma or Australia. Less sugar translates into less alcohol or lower alcohol. Lower alcohol means fewer calories. So if you look for, like, Riesling or Pinot Noir uh, from Canada or some of those regions that I just mentioned that are cool climate, you'll find that the alcohol level is lower. And when you see that, often the calorie level is lower if it's not um, an off-dry wine, meaning that there's some sugar still left in the wine. Okay, that that certainly yeah. helps. Good. And um, before we go in, <laughs> Nita and I were giggling, thinking, I wonder what her response is going to be to this. Make your own wine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> response. I have nightmares. Um, <laughs> That's what we figured you'd say. <laughs> I know. But, you know, I've been in situations at dinner parties in the early years before everyone became Came terrified of bringing me a wine because I wrote about wine. Um, but in the early days when they had didn't have those fears, I, I've been presented with you know homemade wines, which were to me like really ugly babies, and you kind of have to just look at it and say, well. Well, and then you taste it and you go, wow, this is unlike anything I've ever tasted. And they'd be pleased with that. I hopefully will never. <laughs> yeah. We get that well-watered fern in the corner with the wine. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, and some people would say, well, what do you do? And I say, well, take an empty pill bottle, fill it with Smarties, and then say, oh, my gosh, I'm really sorry, but this is just going to interfere with my medication. Um <laughs> Oh, I remember that one, Anita. You tell us how you really feel there now. All, all the red ones. Just save the red parties. But, um, but, okay, so seriously, the flip side is that so, some people, this is a family tradition, and they do take it seriously. It's all about the ingredients. It's like cooking. Are they getting good ingredients? Are they, you know, some people will drive down to Niagara and get fresh grapes and then take it really seriously step by step. And you know what? It's, it's not bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's about as good as you're gonna get right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's how how far i'll give on that but uh no I, you know it's fun like people who love to make their own bread and artisanal kinds of foods and drinks and go for it i just think with these days in the liquor store there are so many well-priced wines that um unless it's just something you enjoy doing don't do it to save money and don't bring it to my house right yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Very good. Okay, well, now that we know exactly how you feel on that, moving on to Anita. <laughs> right. So, sort of along those lines, well, these things, you see them popping up everywhere. Now, they're wine in cans, and of course, there's wine in Tetra Packs. How do you feel about that? Does it change the taste? Right. So, more and more really good wines are being packaged, I guess, you can't say bottled, uh, in cans and Tetra Packs, and they are convenient. Um, I think they help to take the stuffiness out of wine because you don't need a corkscrew. You know, most beverages do not require a special implement just to get into them. Um, they're great for camping poolside where you're concerned about glass breakage. And really, they have moved away. I mean, certainly there are lots of cheap and nasty stuff still in them, but more and more um, better wines are being uh, canned and, and under Tetra Pak. You know, a brand that's here in Ontario is called Big House. It's from California. It's terrific. And um, I also like that with these cans, you can get a better idea of serving size because often they'll can it in uh, like what would be the equivalent of one glass of wine. So, you know, it's also good for moderation. So so that doesn't change the, the taste or anything like that? Yes and no. First of all, if you just want to have a wine and just drink and whatever and you're not concerned about, you know, the whole sniffing and sipping thing, then it really doesn't matter. But a lot of um, the beauty and pleasure of wine is in the nose, not the actual taste. Mm -hmm. We can detect, they think now, millions of different aromas, five tastes on our tongues, you know, the sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami. Uh, but the, the whole pleasure and complexity, if you want to go there, is in your nose. So, you know, drinking it straight out of the can or Tetra Pak, you're not really <laughs> swirling and you can't really get that sense. You need a glass. So you could still have glasses, though, with your cans and Tetra Packs, but usually you're getting that format of packaging because you just want convenience, ease, and, and not to get into all of that. So there's a yes and no. Um, if you're drinking it straight out of those packages, um, you're probably not going to get the aromas as much as you would by pouring it into a good glass. It's supposed to be an experience, isn't it? It's supposed to be the whole thing, exactly. not, just, not just chugging some wine. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> it isn't just about the buzz, although the buzz is part of the package. <laughs> nice, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we have sort of this, yeah, I wouldn't call it like a family feud or anything like that, a little bit of a family debate about red wine and whether it should be sipped at room temperature or should to be chilled just a titch. Like I know that, uh, you know, most of the time um, wine is uh, stored in a wine cellar. So it's a little bit cooler there. So would you recommend room temperature, little titch cooler? What What's your take? So the advice about serving red wine at room temperature dates back to medieval times and medieval castles when they didn't have central heating and the temperature would have been, I don't know, 17, 18 degrees, probably chillier. Mm. Um, so that's what they meant by room temperature. Today, um, well, we're kind of moving out of summer now, but, you know, especially if you're serving red wines in summer heat or in centrally heated homes, it's it's often too warm. And what happens when red wine is too warm or any wine, what you're going to get first is the alcohol and the tannin and sort of the heaviness of the wine. It's not going to be refreshing. Um, it's not going to be sort of uh, zesty with, you know, your aromas of bright berries and all the rest of it. So I do recommend cooling it, just to use your term there, I need it, a titch. Um, so I don't know if that, which side of the family debate you were on. But That's what I, I was going to say. Who won that, Anita? <laughs> yeah. You know what? It actually wasn't me, so I'm going to, I'm not even going to mention. <laughs> you'll, just, you you'll just deliver Natalie's I answer. I got caught in the crossfire. <laughs> Very good. But I, I, sometimes I'll go out to restaurants and if the red wine has been sitting somewhere warm, I'll ask for an ice bucket and they'll think I'm from another planet. But I just want to bring the temperature down just a little because again when it's warm or hot even worse all you get is this sort of uh, I don't know heavy heavy alcohol tannin and oak that's what's in the front of the wine that's interesting you know I was watching um, Ellen years ago and Diane Keaton came out and she was talking about how she liked chilled red wine and Ellen mm -hmm. was making this big deal about saying oh you know no one likes that and why'd you drink that and they brought out chilled red wine for her and I thought maybe that is how you're supposed to drink it maybe everybody else is wrong so thank you for that answer absolutely this is your license to chill this 
this is right. <laughs> this is right. And we can find uh, all these hints and stuff. You, you teach wine courses. You teach all about this. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Sure. Um, well, I come from a long line of teachers in Nova Scotia. Uh, my grandmother was an English teacher. My mom taught grade two for 32 years. I taught dance school, Highland Dancing, oh, for a year. Oh, wow. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. My maritime roots. So <laughs> teaching's in the blood. I love teaching. And um, so I come full circle now after having written about wine for more than 20 years and done all sorts of other things, mobile apps and so on. Now, um, I think the opportunity to teach online is wonderful. And people think, well, how does that work? Are you going to text me the wine? Or right. <laughs> I mean, wine is such a sensory subject. But I think online wine and food pairing classes, like the ones that I offer, have so many advantages over in-person classes, especially now um, with the, the quarantine and all the rest of it. But even apart from that, I think there are lots of advantages. So, for instance, I have a lot of couples who take my classes, and it's kind of a two-for-one because it's sort of one course fee, but the two of them take it together, and they treat it like date night. That's a great idea. Yeah, exactly. So they'll sit down and watch some of the videos or... Because it's a mix of pre-recorded videos, but also live tastings online. And people can go at their own pace. They don't have to hire a babysitter, put the kids to bed, no uh, drinking and driving, no finding parking, all that sort of thing. And then for other people in smaller communities, there may not be wine classes offered there that they want to take. So, yeah, people in smaller communities find it's very convenient um, because uh, a lot of the material is pre-recorded. They can go at their own pace. They get lifetime access. It's not like an in-person course where it's one and done and then you don't have any access to your instructor afterwards. I'm there forever um, because we keep going with the tastings. They get lifetime access to that, too. And then those with mobility issues, all kinds of things. I think they come to these classes and... They're not as nervous as sitting in a class. They're not as nervous asking questions. You know, wine has a lot of social hang-ups. But I think the online aspect can really remove a lot of that for people. I I couldn't agree more with that. I I went to a workshop of wine and I asked a question and and I was shot down like I am a complete dum-dum. And I... And I was, uh, I thought, oh my gosh, I I shouldn't be here. I'm I'm sure it was done without intention. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear about that. Um, Really, you've been wine shamed, and and that should never happen to anyone. Anyone. (laughs) My classes are kind of a healing therapy for that. There you go. Okay, well, there you go. You're my next. You're my next workshop, Natalie. (laughs) But and and what people do with my classes is that you know at first they'll just lurk, like they'll be on the tasting but maybe their camera's turned off. No one has to be on camera, by the way. So they just watch. But gradually, I notice as the course goes on, they, you know, more and more people turn on their cameras and then they start asking questions and then they, I can't shut them up. Right. Um, you know, because the, the conversation continues. It's so much fun. And then there's a private Facebook group and they're always sharing recipes and I just tried this wine. And, and then some of them are starting to meet up in real life and they've developed friendships which is kind of fun. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, yeah, that's, that's really great. It is. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, with the the online teachings or food and wine pairings, can you give us, you know, one of your best tips for pairing wine and food? Sure can. Um, so think about this. If you would normally slather butter on your dish or if you would squeeze lemon on your dish, those two things are going to determine what type of wine you can choose. So if you're slathering butter on your dish, go with something more full-bodied and luscious, maybe an oak chardonnay or even a full-bodied red. But if you're doing a squeeze of lemon, possibly on a fish dish or something like that, you want something zesty and bright, like like one of those Rieslings we talked about or a, a Pinot Noir. It kind of can gauge or guide you in the style and weight of the wine that you would choose with the dish. Oh, that's so good. And that's probably why like a Chardonnay goes 
so well with cheese because it's like that buttery, creamy, rich yeah. type of thing. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, I exactly. Love, that's a great hint. That's a great tip. Oh, good. White wine, you know, is obviously best chilled, but sometimes, you know, you're traveling in a car or what have you, it's summertime, and, you know, when you get to your destination, it's no longer cold. What do you recommend for chilling a hot bottle of white wine? Mm, okay. Well, I call it the wet t-shirt trick, and it's not what you think. <laughs> so, <laughs> you want to uh, dip a t-shirt or a towel. I'm thinking of the cottage, but again, as we move to cooler weather, uh, just take a wet towel that's already got cold water on it, wrap around the bottle, and then put the bottle in the freezer, and do not forget it, so set a timer or something, and take it out in 15 minutes. If it's sticking to the bottle, you can run it briefly under warmer water. It's not going to warm the wine back up. But the reason it works is that there's a full sort of dispersion of that coldness around the bottle uh, that will really bring it down uh, in temperature twice as fast as if you had put the bottle into the freezer. This is also the reason why chilling a bottle in ice water works faster than ice. So in ice, there's pockets of air, unmelted ice, but ice water, you've got a full dispersion of cold water covering the entire bottle, so it comes down more quickly in temperature. Great idea, yeah, because I, I don't like drinking, I don't know about you, Anita, but I, I don't like drink, drinking anything other than ice-cold white wine, so oh, yeah. that's a great For trick. Sure. That's an, oh, gee, you, yes. full, you really know what you're talking about, don't you? <laughs> been around the block a wealth of knowledge <laughs> well we wanted to also ask since we are mom sipping sangria and sangria is made with uh, wine can you give suggestions for you know best reasonably priced red and a white for a sangria sure so sangria has its roots in Spain as you know and great with tapas uh, so I for red I go with a value priced Spanish red wine made from garnacha which is the grape or grape there's uh, one in the LCBO now called uh, Monasterio, and it's about 14 bucks. And I'll post that on my website. Um, so you're looking for the, the reason why it works too is not just the sort of cultural heritage; is that it's a smooth red wine, it, which is what you want when you're choosing a wine for sangria. Because uh, again, the tannins—you don't want those furry mouth tannins in your sangria um, when they're served cold, they get really chalky, very furry-mouthed, and that's not a great thing in your sangria. So that's what I'd recommend on the red side. And then on the white, probably, you know, one of those Rieslings, a zesty white wine. Again, you don't want a heavily oaked Chardonnay in your sangria, and it's easy to keep that under 20 bucks. Try Henry Appellum Riesling from Niagara. I've had that, actually. That's really nice. Okay, very oh, good. good. Excellent. What about rosé? Uh, what's the best way to drink that? Quickly. Um, <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was your answer and now I understand that's actually your answer <laughs> yes she said pausing no I love rosé uh, so you know we have uh, scenes or memes online now rosé all day um, but it's such a wonderful wine it's my second favorite after Pinot Noir because you get that sort of cherry berry lovely flavor of red but again without the heavy oak alcohol and so on. So with rosé, I do like it chilled for sure. Um, and I'll even put ice cubes in it. So there's sacrilege um, <laughs> from your wine shamers. Let's go tell them that. The, the wine gods are about to strike you down, Natalie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I better keep moving. Um, but uh, yeah, no, and rosé is wonderful right in through, like, don't think about it like wearing white. I can't do it past Labor Day. It's perfect with Thanksgiving or holiday turkey. Turkey, anything that you know is a drier meat. Um, it, it just has such a wide range of pairing possibilities. Plus, it's wonderful on its own. Nice. And uh, before we wrap up, I know we've we've taken so much of your time. You've been so generous. Uh, anything else that we should be keeping in mind? Uh, wine hacks from the world of wine. What is your last few words here? Um, when it comes to wine and food pairing, don't get too uptight about choosing the one perfect pairing or one perfect wine. It, it is about pairing the wine to the diner, not the dinner. So drink what you like. When I teach my students the online wine and food pairing classes, and we dive into everything from takeout to veggies to different types of cheeses, 
it's all over the place and we have a lot of fun, but it always comes back to drink what you like, please your own palate, become an expert on your own palate, your own, be your own personal sommelier, because I do think that is kind of a, a recipe for happiness. Sure, that makes sense. And you've got a free gift for our listeners. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, where they can get it. I do. So for your listeners, I've created the Ultimate Food and Wine Pairing Guide. It's a, it's a wonderful template chart that they can print out as they like and keep in the kitchen or refer to it online. But it's got all the major types of wine, red, white, sparkling, rosé, and different types within those categories, and which dishes pair best with those wines. So it's an easy reference if you're kind of looking for ideas. You know what you're having for dinner, but which wine? And your listeners can get it for free at nataliemcclain.com forward slash moms. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you have your own URL now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So com forward slash mom. You know, my my name isn't the easiest, but it's N-A-T-A-L-I-E-M-A-C-L-E-A-N. NatalieMcLean.com forward slash moms. That's amazing. And and we'll put that up on uh, our website. And of course, you have a website where we can listen to your podcast because you're a podcaster, a writer. You've got additional fabulous uh, tools and tips. And so that's also NatalieMcLean.com. Yes, it is. It's the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. And it's I interview like celebrities from the wine world, chefs, winemakers, really crazy obsessive winemakers, and uh, other personalities in the wine world because it's all about telling stories. But in between, you learn a lot about wine, too. Thank you so much for your time today, Natalie. And, you uh, you know, we'll be thinking of you and cheersing you when we uh, have our next glass. So (laughs) stay safe and well. Oh, I raise my glass to both of you. Anita, Sheila, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Natalie. Cheers. Okay, cheers. Cheers. Someone we have developed a real friendship with over our time on Mom Sipping Sangria is Dr. Natasha Sharma, who is just a common sense gal and a expert in mental health and emotional well-being. And she joined us on season two to talk about the Kindness Journal, among other things. So enjoy the advice and guidance from Dr. Natasha Sharma. The last time we spoke to you was actually back in September, which is crazy because time is just flying. How are things in the Sharma household? They're okay. Um, We are, I don't think we have as much um, stress with respect to uh, the parenting piece. I think that's been relatively smooth for us, thankfully. But I think, you know, we... We've been, like most people, dealing, I think, or stepping into that narrow range of sensation, like sensory deprivation almost. So the sort of monotony, the mundaneness is starting to set in. It took a while, I think, for us, but but we're okay. You know, we're healthy. We're, um, we've always been healthy and everyone we know is healthy. So, you know, we're, we're doing okay. Well, we kind of half joked at the top of the show that it's time for a talk down for some of us who are, you know, starting to go through that COVID fatigue all over again. Um, and even for myself, uh, we live in a different area. We're at the east end of town and things have started to open up for us. Um, and so it's readjusting the kids to all of that as well. So it's just like, you know, panic sets in all over again. Um, so we're just going to throw out a couple of scenarios your way and, and get some of your advice. Sound okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. So we're going to start with those of us who may have had kids at home trying to navigate this new, you know, way of learning that keeps evolving, you know, as I just mentioned, time after time. So how can we help kids and ourselves and even the teachers when it comes to, you know, the learning environment? Well, I think to help our kids, the in this kind of situation, I think the way kids are responding really is dependent on their age. And um, most younger kids are, are very apt to go with the flow because kids are extremely resilient. They're, they are what I like to call the original highest level beings. And what I mean by that is that they don't think the way adults do. And um, I mean that as a compliment. Um, they just jump in and go with the flow much more readily and easily, and they very much live in the now. Um, and I think for most kids, their ability to adapt to what's going on around them and all of us is much higher than the average adult. So, 
you know, for, for the younger kids, you know, mine are four and seven. It's been, I think we tend to have tended to maybe us underestimate that. And I think as parents, what we really ought to be looking at is how we're handling that and, and sort of how we're navigating it. Because that, I think, becomes a critical indicator of how the kids will respond. I mean, they're really a reflection of how their parents are doing and managing their own um, selves. And that's not, that's not to say that your parents, that as parents, we have to be perfect, but we certainly have to be. I think on a higher level than our children. Now, that being said, I think older kids, you know, teenagers, uh, especially, you know, 15 plus would have different needs and certainly be experiencing things a bit more differently. But I think the same advice applies even, even in those situations where parents really need to um, look at how they're communicating with their children and what it is that they are uh, how they are living their lives day to day really is uh, the model that becomes what what the kids in the family will adopt or will will be observing. Um, even if you're really really struggling, like there are people who are going through some very dark times right now, and I'm not trying to disrespect that in any way, shape, or form. But even in a situation like that, if that is you freaking out um, or having that kind of an emotional reaction in the face of um, even very distressful time or real problems in your household is not the best way to solve them. Right. <laughs> You're said and done as someone who freaks out regularly. <laughs> and so to, to, for those who do have those kind of, uh, their ten- natural tendency is to freak out, what can they do differently to bring that down a notch? What would you recommend? Well, so, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't, the term neurotic can be t- mistaken, like, and to be a very negative thing, but it's a term that is really descriptive in nature. It's not an inherently bad term, but it, it is sort of a term that can be used to describe um, the tendency to overreact or inflate or amplify uh, a negative circumstance. And I think people who are prone to that, being that way, really need to examine their thinking, like, what's going on? in my mind that is how what, what is the reality that I'm creating what am I focusing on in this because what we focus on expands no matter what the situation is that's what that is sort of a universal law what we focus on expands so people who tend to react like that are often focusing on and placing focus on their what they think about is the worst case scenarios and, and outcomes that are possible or but maybe not very plausible you know, or things that they might not even be able to predict, but in their mind, this is what they're focused on is this, this outcome, this prediction that they have. And so really what those individuals need to do is take a step back and really examine like, hey, what am I, what am I focusing on in my head here? How am I creating this experience for myself right here in this moment? And is this serving me? Is this the best way for me to show up in this situation right now? Because most, in most cases, I can tell you that having that kind of a reaction to most things in life uh, will not mobilize you. It will actually immobilize you. That makes sense. And I, I have a feeling your eight-hour therapist, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, would probably um, touch on these things and, and do a lot of a, a self-exploration to see if you do fall in that category. Yeah, absolutely. The program is really um, a whole academy almost of eight um, courses that span the range of different topics, you know, going from understanding how to change our thinking and how the power of changing our thinking um, gives us the empowers us to change how we feel and how our, our entire experience of life is mental, really, at the end of the day. Even the way we observe and interact with form, like physical form, is still a mental experience. So it teaches us about that. And then it goes through um, the sort of different erroneous or thinking errors that we tend to have as humans that create distress for ourselves and how we can actually tackle um, some of the most common problems that we have like depression and anxiety and even managing anger and it's really the ultimate goal of the program of the eight-hour therapist is for people to live at their fullest potential you know live at that highest level or self-actualized level or whatever you want to call it 
which in my opinion, a very, very small percentage of humans do. But in my belief that the vast majority of humans have the have the capability of doing. What about reactions in COVID? Like right now, disappointments in COVID, you can't graduate, party and proms and wedding plans. Um, how, how would you address people who are experiencing uh, not necessarily, um, you know, a, a mental issue, but more of a disappointment issue? What can we do to cheer people up like that? Well, I think those disappointments are very real and they're very human and they're, we all, we've all experienced disappointment at this point in some way, shape or form, every single one of us. And it's not possible to live a life without that feeling. I think the way to, to live with that and move beyond it is to understand that the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And that is a tough pill to swallow right now, although I think inherently we do know that. I mean, there's we've been living this way for more than a year in some parts of the world and almost a year for us here. And there's nothing about what we're going through that isn't supposed to be exactly the way it is, if that makes sense. We need to let ourselves feel that disappointment. It's fine to feel, you know, sad. We feel sad when we we've lost something or, or we've, you know, we've missed an opportunity that we were looking forward to. That's all, that's all very fine. That's all being human. But I think when we mentally get into that idea that this shouldn't be happening and why me and why is this happening in the world? And it's not supposed to be this way. And I'm supposed to be like, a, I was promised I was going to graduate and I, or whatever it was, or th- this kind of thinking is where we get into more, more trouble. And if we can just understand and accept that the world, even in this pandemic, as difficult as it is, it's exactly the way it is supposed to be because it is, it's already, it's happening. It's here. It's there. Like whatever it is today, whatever tomorrow is, is exactly the way it's supposed to be because it is. Do you you follow what I'm saying? It's all in divine order. It's it's happening. You can't think of something that is already in the past or in the present as shouldn't have happening because it already did. Right. It's all about that control, Mm -hmm. right? That that feeling that you're out of control with with things like this. Exactly. Exactly. There is no controlling it. It, it, It's happening. I mean, there are certain things that we can control and we ought to focus on that but everything that is beyond our control is just exactly as it should be makes sense well and i know you know for you sheila you have lila who is um you know supposed to be graduating and having the big prom and all that stuff this year and likely won't happen um and for ava we went through the same thing last year and i think it's you know as parents um and correct me if i'm wrong here dr sharma but um it's just uh showing the compassion that you understand that they're not you know going through and if they're feeling upset about it let them be upset you know it's it's not a oh you know don't worry about it Ava didn't go through it so you know Lila you're not going through it either it's you're not the first one not to go through it I think just you know accepting and letting them have their feelings and um and saying that it's okay for them to feel that way you know they do get past it and then you know when they have their little moments of excitement you know you build them up even higher that's what we had to do with Ava anyways and she's 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 surviving (laughs) yeah I, I agree with that Nobody likes to be told that they shouldn't feel the way that they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even when it's completely neurotic, you shouldn't even still tell, you still shouldn't tell someone that you shouldn't be feeling this that way you, because they are. Again, there's that word again. It's exactly what's, what's unfolding is exactly the way it should be. Instead, to tell your kids, you know, yeah, I, I understand. I understand how this could be really sad for you. Uh, and, 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 you know, focus first on, on the feeling, the experience that they have and joining with them and then maybe even sharing an experience of your own, not to compare, you know, because none of us have ever gone through what our kids are going through in terms of, of missing out or school and what they're, you know, how, how they're having to go to school right now. But, you know, just connecting with an experience where you lost something or were sad of your own can be a really powerful thing uh, to help them realize that these things do pass and, um, and eventually you can, you can kind of remind them of that. It's going to get better, you know. And it will. It will. Um, what about uh, single people, uh, lonely people? You know, my 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 ninety one year old mother gave me a call and she said, "You know what, you girls should talk about on your pod? <laughs> <laughs> How lonely people and elderly people. You know, we need that. We need that touch. We need that human interaction. We're all dying of you know a broken heart. Never mind COVID. And I thought, you know, that's that's great, but there's not a really easy answer." because we've got to do 
what you know public health is is telling us and and so we're not putting them in jeopardy is there an answer for something like that dr sharma it's a really difficult thing i think that's one of the most difficult things is for people to be completely alone right now but you know there's a difference between being alone and being lonely and um you know just because you're alone I'm alone right now. I'm sitting in a room in my home. But loneliness is your perception of the quality of your connections to people in the world. And I heard a beautiful thing recently, um, just a wonderful, I cannot take credit for this at all. Um, I don't know who said this, but the difference between alone and all one is just one letter. And that's the letter L. And we are all one. And, and although it can, it's a very strange time where on a level we are aware of just how connected we truly are, literally, like with the spread of this virus and, and, and how connected it, it shines a spotlight on the connection. I mean, we don't even have to be touching and we're connected by this virus, which can jump from person to person if you're close enough, you know. But the idea that everything that we are and touch and do and, and our entire existence is connected to every other human being on this planet. And this is where, you know, this becomes very spiritual, very, you know, this is the sort of higher level self, it's higher level thinking is what I call it, where truly, if you really believe that, then you are never alone. And, and you're never lonely because you know your, your very existence um, impacts those around you, even if you can't physically see people or be with people. And, and of course, to those individuals, I would encourage them to make sure that they're making every effort that they can to connect with someone every day or as often as they'd like to, um, by phone, by Zoom, however way they can. It's not a substitute, but it's definitely better than not connecting at all. So I guess the common elements with all these different scenarios and many other scenarios is, you know, stress, the unknown, like we talked about, lack of control, and specifically, you know, the need for support, which is a great segue back into your great tool, um, which is the eight-hour therapist. You talked a little bit about it. You launched it. Um, so in, in a nutshell, for people who are looking for support, maybe they don't want to, um, you know, have a virtual meet with um, a counselor or a therapist. This is a really great option. Can you just tell a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, the basis of creating it was really, it's been a long project. We did not create it because of, you know, in the last year, it's been almost a four-year long thing that we've been putting together. And um, it's it's under my uh, company, The Kindness Journal, which uh, produces our guided journal as well. And it's all under the same sort of banner. And we started it with the idea of my co-creator, my co-instructor, Daniel Rutley. He and I put this together because we realized when I was still practicing how inaccessible uh, counseling therapy really is to a great many people. It's not, you know, part of our national healthcare plan. It's um, It still is accessible only to a small percentage of people, although it is becoming increasingly important in everybody's life. So that was sort of the, the impetus for starting it, is really making a program that not only for people who prefer to just do something that's self-directed from the privacy of their own home, and they can do it on the go, and they can do it from their mobile phone or their iPhone, had or their laptop but you know also for those who can't afford and see someone personally and have that one-on-one coach or therapist this is a really good option at a very tiny fraction of the cost um, at 299 us for the entire program it's just a little more than the cost of a single session best session and a half so you know that i think is a huge um, factor the affordability and the accessibility to tools and teachings i think that everyone in the world should have the right to know and have access to. Um, And as I said, I think most of the time, most people live well. It's not that they, I don't want to say that, you know, people who um, are sort of living day-to-day life and functioning, um, they're happy, you know, they they have problems, they deal with them, they get past them. But then there's this very small percentage, you know, maybe three or two percent that really live at sort of peak potential or what I call peak potential. Uh, Some people call it self-actualized and of the highest level. And this is something we can go into in more detail today or we can save it for another day. But this is like the kind of place where you are, if I could define it in one sentence, very much at peace, no matter what the circumstances are that are around you. And I truly believe everyone has the ability to live like that. And this program teaches you how to do that. 
Hallelujah, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Two more of these programs sold. So how long does it take to complete this program? So the program, I mean, it's called the eight hour therapist. It's eight eight hours. I think you charge that. Sorry, Anita, I check that up. (laughs) It's, you know what, it's a little bit more than that. It's about, um, I'd say between nine and 10 hours because the courses, there's eight courses and I think each one is just slightly over an hour. And then there is a guided relaxation and visualization audio app. And actually the courses can be taken either by video. Some people like to do audio. So we actually provide both options. So people who want to listen on the go or be doing something, I do kind of recommend that you're focused on it, but you could listen to it audio or watch the video. And then it comes with eight workbooks. So um, the workbooks are are really fantastic because you download them and you fill them in uh, and you sort of apply the learnings to your own life which really help retain the knowledge and you you can do this we recommend doing it over eight weeks like one per week in order to sort of digest and practice the material but you know people can go at their own pace and the website to go and actually purchase the course is kindnessjournal.com Okay, so once again, kindnessjournal.com, the eight-hour therapist at your own speed. Everyone needs a therapist. I always say you're crazy if you don't have a therapist. So this is an easy way to get some help from Dr. Natasha Sharma. And uh, thanks again to her for joining us, I think, three times over the past two seasons. Our final chat that we're highlighting from season two is Erin Davis and really a woman who needs no introduction. So enjoy Erin Davis on Mums Sipping Sangria, best of season two. So when we thought of chatting with someone who would be able to leave 2020 on a high note, you're like the only person who we thought was capable of doing so. (laughs) Oh, well, that is my honor and my pleasure. And I didn't have any problem coming up with with, uh, ideas about things that really, really were good about 2020. So when that time capsule from 2020 is opened years from now, what are some of the good stories that we might find inside? Well, let's start with the way that we connected. And I really think that that is the thread that weaves all the way through 2020. And it's such a, it's a dichotomy, it's a contradiction, uh, but we connected by staying apart. And we did that in a number of ways. We did it especially technologically. More people doing things like Zoom meetings. Please, can we stop having to put makeup on for phone meetings? Um, anyway. Here, here. Oh, God. Do this over the phone. Um, okay. So we connected on Zoom. And I was talking with a, a guy from Abacus Data the other day named David Coletto. And he referred to his parents in their 60s as technical immigrants. People who were not born with all of this. They didn't come out with a device in their hand. And they have learned to do this. We're Googling, we're, we're, you know, Google meetings, we're doing FaceTime, we're Zooming. We are connected in ways that we never thought. And I think that this isolation, quarantine, whatever it is, all of this has pushed us exponentially into where we were eventually going to get, but we've just gone there on warp speed. And what a blessing it's been. There have been, you know, a couple of things, people caught on camera doing things they shouldn't have been, (laughs) Uh, these Zoom meetings. (laughs) Do you remember the those early days and yeah people would be like on the toilet while they're they're meeting thinking people oh aren't seeing. <laughs> hopefully we've learned our lesson yeah mute that thing um so yeah technologically we have become connected and we've become connected in another way i don't know if this happened with you guys but in the early days of quarantine first off rob and i had to hightail it out of the u.s to try and get out as soon as we saw trump at the oval office desk telling people you know you better come home and then there was pandemonium in the airports because nobody had planned for it Mm. um we decided okay we got to get out of california ended up selling that house um we got home we had to self-quarantine people started bringing us food like friends bringing casseroles and it's just oh it's so 1950s welcome to the neighborhood but we reconnected in that way too 
so heartwarming and um, it really shows the uh, you know the compassion and caring that it, that are in people but it, we needed to slow down in order to see that totally and Rob and I every week we deliver meals for our local community center for for older folks and people who can't get out or don't want to get out and it's just I wish that I could sit and talk with them for a little bit we're kind of on a tight schedule but also because we've got masks and distancing we can't but there is that little bit of connection at the door as we're handing over their meals and it just it's everything that we have used this opportunity of isolation to turn it into connection and again that thread of 2020 is connection love that so those are two out of ten that's amazing so it's all about the connection and and how we reconnected and how we found new ways to connect Absolutely. Now, we connected with the shows that we hadn't had a chance to watch. We got a chance to do binge watching. I fell in love with Bosch. If you haven't seen this, he's an L.A. detective. Hieronymus Bosch, played by Titus Welliver. Yum. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Mm. Um, On the other hand, I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes. (laughs) Bosch, spelt like the appliance. Come on in my kitchen. Mm. All right. Yes. I got to go now. <laughs> oh, he can scour my casserole oh. anyway. Okay. <laughs> We've suddenly gone from G-rated to uh <laughs> What are you talking about, Sheila? I'm talking about dishes. Come on. Um, on the other hand, we had Tiger King. If you ever wanted to see, you know, Trump buys a zoo, here we go. And uh, good God. So what do we think? What do we think? Did, did Carol Baskin feed her husband to the, to the tiger? 100%. Or, or we, yeah, right? Hey there, cat Anyway. But, you know, didn't that show yeah. make you feel better about yourself? Yeah, really. Eh? In every possible way. Every way. Even my COVID hair felt better about itself. Jeez. Oh, oh my. God. Oh, my. Yeah. And, and we discovered things that we hadn't before. We had time for deep dives into, uh, you know, some of the Oprah interviews or a new season of David Letterman. Um, Queen's Gambit came out. Yeah. yeah so, oh, amazing. Yeah. So instead of drama queens, we got to watch actual queens. Mm. And uh, and so that's been a good thing. We've, we've had time to watch stuff. So that was another positive thing. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Next up, home perspectives. Now, I do a podcast for the Canadian Real Estate Association. And a lot of the focus this year has been people are going crazy. The real estate market has been insane. And part of this is... Our homes have had to become everything. They're our office, our restaurant, our gym, our spa, everything. Our, you know, meeting places, everything. Our schools. Yes, of course. Most important, (laughs) schools. So people have had to look around and go, what's wrong with this picture? Why is that there? Why don't we do this? We need more space. We don't use that living room, sitting room thing. Let's open it up. So those who decided to hold on to their houses have changed their houses. I don't know if you guys knew this, but in the spring, when everything was on lockdown, except for a few stores, the busiest stores were home improvement, paint stores. The the, the Hello, baby. Oh, Hi, Rosie. Um, Maybe she meant pet stores. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, and pet stores. I mean, you could not get an animal to save your life, um, but you were saving theirs right. because there were rescues galore. Come here, baby. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Because people were, people said, hey, I've got time to train an an animal. I want a pet in my home. I need that connection. And so a lot of animals were rescued from shelters. Yeah. So there's another positive thing. That happened this year as well. Have you kept count here, Sheila? That would be six. That would be six. Yeah. Ah, geez. Yeah. Okay. I think this is making us all feel so much better. Do carry on. Seriously. Yeah. Okay. Well, Canada, as a country, we had, of course, 
our challenges. But seeing Barack Obama the other night with Stephen Colbert and him name-checking Canada as having like 35% the number of COVID casualties that the United States mm. has had. We haven't done things perfectly. You know, there's uh, there are a lot of questions about how the vaccines will be handed out and, uh, and who will get it first and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're saying Trudeau dithered and whatever, whatever, because he can't do anything right in some people's eyes. But what he did was he communicated with us every day, sometimes just so people could criticize his hair or his beard. <laughs> I like the beard. I like the beard. <laughs> but he he communicated with us and the difference, we always compare ourselves to the United States, and in some ways, it's it's always been a bit of an inferiority complex among Canadians, whether we admit it or not. But Canada was built on peace, order, and good governance. The United States was built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And because we tend to be rule followers, we tend to do what we're told, um, we have done in many ways, not exemplary, but well in terms of how Canada, with some notable provincial exceptions, have handled the pandemic. Uh, we, we stuck to our bubbles. Um, some provinces said, nope, you're not coming in at all. Newfoundland and Labrador have uh, refused all requests for people to come home for the holidays. People are taking this seriously. And people like Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia have stepped up and been shining examples, not just for Canada, but for the world, of how to handle this. So I think, um, yeah, not perfect, but a lot of things were done right. So I think that that's a real feather in our cap for 2020 as well. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I feel like we're safer in Canada than a lot of other places. We are not as um, at risk and that could be false, but just, I just think the way they've done it has made us feel safe. And isn't that what government's all about? Trusting and, you know, we've, we've got your back. We're looking out for you. Exactly. And all we have to do is listen. Listen to epidemiologists, listen to scientists and experts instead of some anonymous troll in their basement who is, you know, <laughs> spreading, spreading misinformation yep. at, at whose behest we don't know. We mm. can suspect. But, uh, you know, we're, there was a thing in Red Deer a few weeks ago about, you know, our civil liberties. And I'm going... Hmm, yeah. civil liberties. Where do we hear that phrase a lot? Mm-hmm. So, exactly. I don't know. There's there's room for pushback with governance and government and stuff. But, you know, when it comes to people who are trying to save our lives, I want to listen to the experts. Yes. You know, and not some TV doctor, Sanjay Gupta accepted. Yeah. But, you know, some <laughs> someone who doesn't know a virus from Miley Cyrus. So there you go. Oh, she does it again. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that's up to seven for the last three. Right. What last three do you want to? choose now got so many of them i was reading an interview with the sax player mark rivera from billy joel's band and he's been with him for 30 some years by the way billy joel is paying all of his musicians when they're not performing monthly at madison square garden nice talk about a stand-up oh my goodness so this sax player mark rivera people say what's the trick what's the you know this is the guy who wrote the sax riff from sledgehammer Mm. he wrote the sax riff from urgent foreigner he's just He's everything, and I'm sorry to fangirl on him, but he was asked, what's the trick? He said there is no trick. It's attitude, aptitude, gratitude. Mm. And I, I circled that quote because I thought, oh, my God, that's so good. Attitude. That we can do this, we have to do as we're told, okay? And and we'll get through this together, and no exceptionalism. We just do what we have to to keep other people safe, even if we don't think that we're in the danger zone. There are a lot of people who are. So attitude, aptitude, we found out things we were good at in 2020. There were people making bread. There were people who were going back to sewing or creating or scrapbooking. There were people who were getting on TikTok and creating there, learning the guitar. You know, um, in the first round of COVID quarantine, people were exploring and achieving things. Second round, it's an achievement if we get our pajama pants on. But anyway. Okay, Okay, we're all feeling that way. Okay, good. Yeah, exactly. So attitude, aptitude, and of course, gratitude. We stop taking things like toilet paper and paper Mm -hmm. towels and no lineups at the stores for granted. I mean, 
you guys are fairly close in age to me. And, you, you know, you remember seeing newsreels of communist countries where people lined up for a loaf of bread or or all of these things that we went, are you kidding me? We walk into a supermarket the size of a small town and everything is at our fingertips. But now we can be grateful. We can be grateful for the people who are working there, for all the frontline workers, for everybody who goes to a job and isn't getting the extra pay this time around. You know, there are so many people who are out of work and my heart aches for every one of them. I think of, you know, the hotel staff mm. and, and, and the people who, who have been there for us and we thank them. Well, we're thanking them now and, and we're thanking the frontline workers. We're thanking each other for being careful and being safe. And we're thanking those who are in charge, who are dealing with threats and, and constant, you know, vitriol online and just doing their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's probably a mm. 10 list there. Fantastic. Yeah. Aaron. That's really amazing. Yeah. Honestly, there's so much bad in, that has happened in 2020. But you this list, you've just made me feel so much better as we, you know, say goodbye to it and are going to be, you know, greeting 2021, whatever that might hold. What's your wish for 2021? Well, remember the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that 2021 is foresight. I hope that we have the foresight to watch and see what happens with, so far, the three companies with vaccines. Um, make sure that the right people are telling us to get them. I had a meeting the other day with a woman, and we talked about a possible business project. And then she said, well, I'm worried about the vaccine because there could be tracking in the vaccines. And I'm thinking, oh, my what? goodness. Okay. Nobody cares what we're doing. And if they are, so what? Mm -hmm. And I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the people who don't get the vaccine. And then, you know, kids are getting it at school, getting the the virus, and we'll never be done with this horrific thing. So my wish, my foresight for 2021 is that people give their heads a shake, get off cue, get off the sites that are not news, but are just garbage and propaganda, and start thinking for themselves does this make sense so i don't know that's a soapbox i could be on for four hours but i'm just i'm so tired of the dumbing down of information and and that people are just so open to the most ridiculous Mm. ideas just because their aunt edna sent it to them on facebook (laughs) well that's and that's the problem is a lot of these things um circulating on social media platforms so you're absolutely right aaron we love you stay safe hugs to everyone there and we always look forward to reading your materials on aaron Thanks so much for listening to Mom Sipping Sangria Best of Season 2. Uh, now, Natalie, Natasha, and Aaron were just three of the many fabulous guests we chatted with in Seasons 1 and 2. Visit our website, momsippingsangria.com, or wherever you stream your podcasts to listen to the rest of Season 2 and all of Season 1. Happy September. Stay well and healthy. Cheers. Cheers. Mom Sipping Sangria is produced by Elm Podcasting. Visit elmpodcasting.com for more information.